This Slate spoiler special is meant to be played after you see the movie being discussed. The podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and I'm here with the Slate spoiler special podcast on Drive, the new thriller with Ryan Gosling, directed by Nicholas Winding Refn, and uh, John Swansburg here in the studio with me. Hey, John. Hey, good to be here. Slate's culture editor. And uh, we just stepped out of this movie a few hours ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was inquiring before we started to tape whether your adrenaline has come down in the few hours since we saw the movie, because it's, it's pretty intense. I'm still feeling somewhat um, shell-shocked from this film, although I think the feeling I'm having now is slightly different. When we both walked out of the movie, I think we were both kind of like our hands were clammy and we felt a little bit on edge. And now I, I still kind of feel that I'm in the moment or still, still uh, reacting to the movie, but I, it's almost like more of a queasiness. I keep having these flashbacks to some of the gorier scenes that, that happened in the second half of the movie that uh, were, were really affecting. Well, let's, let's, I can't wait to get to spoiling some of those gory scenes, and we'll work out some of the PTSD together. But <laughs> I hope so. Let's, uh, let's do a quick plot summary first. Um, what do we need to know before we go into our, our spoilage here? So Drive is a movie about a driver right. played by Ryan Gosling, who's only known as Driver. We didn't actually figure that out until we'd walked out. Like, what was that yeah, character's name? What was that guy's name? name? Yeah, he has no name, and that's handled really well. You don't really notice the elision of any name until, I think, you start right, thinking about Right, because that can it. be kind of an artsy device in a right. movie, right? The nameless character. But it is actually really well integrated, and it didn't really occur to me at the time. But yes, he's the this nameless, suitably nameless, because he's sort of a type like the samurai, you know, that Alain Delon movie, Le Samurai, you know, right. he's sort of one of those those noir types who has no history, no future, and you don't need to or want to know anything about him. Right. And, and when we say he's a driver, he's he's connected to cars in three different ways. He is a mechanic by day, actually fixing cars. On the side, he makes money doing uh, automobile or vehicular stunts for the movies. We see it, There's only one scene in which we see him doing that, but we, he's uh, dressed up like a cop, which is kind of a funny visual gags we know he's also a criminal and he's he drives a police car and it flips over and he gets you know paid some relatively modest sum for doing that and then in the last way he's in which he's a driver is he uh, is a getaway driver sort of for, for hire he he really specializes in the the fine art of getting away from the scene if you are uh, you know a, a sort of mid-level crook in uh, Los Angeles and you need a guy who's going to get you away from the scene and not get caught by the cops you call driver and he he will do the job for you and he does it very professionally which is established by the cold open right there's the scene before the credits I, I sort of love the way actually there's a cold open and then there's classic credits with yeah. this great magenta cursive font that looks very 80s there's something really old school about the way the movie opens that I love but his his skill as a driver and his cunning as a driver is is exemplified by this this opening scene where he's driving two faceless thugs we don't know who they are away from some heist and uh, and it's an unusual chase scene because it's very minimalist right doesn't involve any crashing or you know there's a little bit of of, of cop tailing action but essentially you're seeing how well he knows the streets of Los Angeles and how minimalist a driver he is, that he basically wants to do the bare minimum to hide from the cops. So there's moments, for example, where his big stunt is just that he very quickly pulls into a parking space and turns his lights off. Yeah, I mean, I loved that. I thought that was, uh, it was so surprising. You think, you know, this guy's a stunt driver. He's going, what he's going to do is jump over, uh, you know, other cars, Dukes of Hazard style or something, you know, really outlandish and crazy like you sort of have come to expect from a Hollywood movie about about driving, something like Ronin with its great, you know, uh, driving set pieces. But like you said, in the, that cold opener, he just, he basically is playing cat and mouse with the cops. And at one point he does, I thought the greatest moment in that scene is he realizes that the best place to be at a given moment is 
right behind the car, the cop car that's searching for him. He sort of like tailgates a cop car. Right. Well, because he's, he's tapping into the radio, the police radio. So right. he knows that that particular car has just discounted the area and said exactly. he's not here. Right. So then he just starts tailgating him, driving directly it's, behind it. Yeah, it's so it's so smart. And uh, and the other great thing about that about that scene is he's sort of listening to he's got the police scanner. So he knows what the police are saying. And then the other thing he's doing is listening to the Los Angeles Clippers basketball game and the viewer doesn't know why he's doing that. It seems like, wow, this guy's a virtuoso driver and he's an NBA fan and he's just like listening to the game. But it turns out that the ultimate destination of of the car is to drive right into the Staples Center where the Clippers play uh, and then all of a sudden the car is, is sort of lost among the sea of fans and that was sort of, that's the getaway plan, I, I guess. Although the ending of that seems a little bit ambiguous. Right. So he walks out with his Clippers cap on right. discreetly. We don't know or, or really, nor is he, does he particularly seem to care what happens to the two guys who hired him. And then at that that's the moment we see the word drive and the movie yeah. starts in earnest. So so to quickly summarize what happens in the movie. So he works for Brian Cranston, who's the, the mechanic who owns the shop he works in, mm-hmm. right? And uh, there's a couple threads going on. Brian Cranston is trying to get him started as a stock car driver, right? right? So he gets some, some mobsters, played by Albert Brooks and Ron Perlman, Jewish mobsters, to invest in the, the stock car that they want to doll up for his for his race car driving and we get to see him do one sort of audition right. driving a race car and that never goes anywhere for reasons that, that we'll get into. And in the other story, he has a neighbor in his in his apartment building, played by Carrie Mulligan, who he's starting to get to know and sort of fall in love with, who is married to a guy in prison, right? Right? who has a young son. Her husband's in prison. And do you want to take it from there? Sure. Uh, the husband has the great name of Standard, uh, and the boy's named Benicio. And uh, yeah, the, Carrie Mulligan and, and Ryan Gosling have a, have a lot of great moments in the beginning of the, of the movie where they just sort of are dr- looking at one another dreamily. There's, there's a lot of quiet in this movie. There's not a lot of snappy dialogue between the two, but they clearly have an affection for one another. Gosling kind of takes Mulligan and her her son on on drives uh, and impresses them with his uh, with his ability as a driver. And then, lo and behold, Standard comes home from prison, and that obviously complicates the uh, nascent love affair between Gosling and Mulligan. And it also turns out that Standard has uh, incurred some kind of debt in prison. He owes money to some other mobsters. And uh, ultimately, Gosling sort of agrees to help him do this heist. The one last job thing, The one right? last job the thing. The idea will... being that if he can pay off this debt, he's going to hold up a pawn shop, pay off the debt that he incurred in prison, which I gather was protection money. It was protection money, yeah. And then, you know, so Gosling sort of does this in a selfless manner. Even though he loves Carrie Mulligan uh, or thinks he might, he realizes that the, in order to protect them from these awful mobsters, uh, he needs to kind of help out the husband who's recently come home from, from prison. And that's you also sort of... get the sense, I think it's implied, that Gosling himself is trying to get away from the crime biz. So it might be his last job as well. He wants to get more into race driving and, and stunt driving, right? Because we see right. him turn down a job from a criminal who comes up and asks him to drive. Right. So they, they go off and the, the heist is to hold up a pawn shop for what's what they're told is some relatively small sum of money, like $40,000. There ends up being a million dollars in the pawn shop and the pawn shop heist goes horribly wrong. Standard is uh, shot and killed. They have to uh, make a quick getaway, which is actually the uh, impetus for the second and only other chase scene in the movie, really, uh, or only other scene where we see a lot of uh, virtuoso driving from Gosling. Well, no, there's the third chase scene when he's after Perlman in the end. But we'll That's true, that. but they don't really... I mean, the driving at that point is really just... He's just kind of tailing them. You know, I mean, it's... 
it's a sort of clever setup in that last one, but it's the, the really only other chase chase, I think, is the is that second. It's really only chase at all, because the first one's also kind of, like you said, it's not uh, it's not a true kind of movie um, movie chase. But anyway, the heist goes terribly wrong, and it sort of sets off this awful series of events. So this, okay. I'm so glad we're spoiling this, because this is just the kind of movie that you want to have an untrammeled conversation about. And it's going to be hard to review, because I feel like I can talk about the mood, I can talk about the setup, but I can't actually say, Jesus Christ, can you believe what happened in <laughs> right. the elevator? Right. Okay, the elevator is what I can't get away from. It's, we're not doing it in order at all, but let's spoil the elevator scene. Okay, so at one point, basically, these gangsters are after um, Gosling's character, and they find out about Carrie Mulligan. And they send uh, one of their toughs to go sort of get a sense of who um, Gosling is, and I think basically to, to kill Gosling and maybe Carrie Mulligan as well. Because they're the ones who know about the heist. Right, because the, at that point, Standard is already dead. Uh, they know about the heist. They still have the money as well. So they want, I think they want the money, and they want to rub out these two, these two people. So Mulligan and uh, Gosling get in an elevator with this guy who's basically on his way up to go kill them and they have this kind of weird ride down in the elevator together and Gosling sort of spies that the mobster has a gun kind of in a holster on his uh, on his person and then there's a very very weird sequence where first we go into slow motion and Gosling uh, Oh and the, the elevator goes dark. The elevator goes, goes not for dark, real. Not completely it goes, dark. It, goes it dims. Big, right. I mean it goes dims. romantically dark, right? right? It goes to it's like not actually it goes to sort of like nice restaurant dim <laughs> in the elevator. It had previously been kind of fluorescent. Gosling turns around, plants like a very uh, serious kiss on Carrie Mulligan. Their first kiss. Their first kiss. They make out for a little bit. He then sort of turns away from her, punches the gangster, so the gangster falls down on the ground, and then proceeds to just brutally kick this guy's skull in until basically the, the his skull collapses. I mean, right. his, he his basically head, stomps his face. He off. stomps his. He literally stomps his face off to the point where you and I were both just. We I think we both averted our eyes toward the end. I mean, it's it's just repeated, repeated kicks to the face, stomping with a, like a really heavy boot, and it, and it's that's the first moment where there's gore of that nature. Up until that point, a lot of the violence has sort of been either off screen or implied. There'd been one other shooting, I think, but it's just really, really gross. And from then on, and, and he's perpetrating it. I mean, in addition. Right. Our being the most is, graphic scene, it's also Ryan Gosling who's, who's doing it, <laughs> right. who, although he hasn't been painted as being the warmest guy, has basically been our hero up to this point. Right. So it's a completely crazy scene. I also love, I was saying, the temporality of this elevator ride, because they live on the fourth right. floor of their building, but there's at least 100 floors worth of action that oh, happens yeah. on the elevator. It's really, really kind strange. of awesome. I mean, it's stretched out in, in a beautiful way. It's not the only time slow-mo is used really well in the movie. Not the usual kind of gangster slow-mo, Reservoir dog style, right. super stylized. It's more of a subjective slow-mo as if you're seeing what's happening inside his mind. It's slowed down because it's slowed down for him. Right, and it's a very cinematic uh, kiss, but it's also it's like the beginning and the end of their romance right there. They have that one moment. Carrie Mulligan doesn't know that the guy, the third man in the elevator, is this gangster. And then the next thing she knows— And the elevator door, that's a really nice ending to the scene, right? The elevator door closes. She's looking at him, and as I was saying, I think that I'd be perfectly satisfied with that being Carrie Mulligan's last scene in the movie. It's yeah. not, but I mean, you already know at that point, like, okay, they love each other, and this is not going to happen it's not for various reasons, not only because he's involved with the mob, but because he has this psychotic edge. Yeah, he's just—I mean, he— he betrays a, a violent nature in that scene that the viewer isn't quite expecting uh, and that certainly Carrie Mulligan is not not expecting. And, and you know, that, that's one of the things that's interesting about this movie. I mean, um, Gosling, up until that point, you know, like you said, he's not a traditional hero. He's, 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 a, he's certainly a noir hero. Um, but uh, we haven't seen that level of violence. He's not a guy who carries a gun. Uh, he's certainly fearless, but we haven't seen uh, – we haven't known that he's capable of that level 
of violence up until that point. At that point, we know he's capable of anything, and, and then later in the movie, he proves himself again willing to uh, to do some pretty serious damage to anyone who not really he, he sort of not doesn't have much of a protection. Um, uh, instinct about himself, but when it comes to protecting Carrie Mulligan, he is willing to do anything, including sacrificing his own body. Right. I mean, it's a, it's a warrior code kind of movie, right? right. And I actually think, in, in the end, it's something of a critique of the warrior code, because there are moments that he could have averted, right? He could have done something to avert the gangland violence. It's not as if everything that happens is happening to him. Right. He's also, because he's so loyal to her and refuses to back down, and, you know, because essentially of this, this samurai creed that he seems, this unspoken creed he seems to believe in, just gets himself into all kinds of shit. Yeah, there's actually one moment at the end. I wondered, we haven't talked about this, and I wondered what you thought of it. At the very end of the film, and here we're getting into serious spoiler territory, he basically, all the gangsters, uh, various gangsters come after him, and, and he manages to kill them all. Never, uh, re- Except for with one instance, he uses a gun, but for the most part, he prefers to kill either using cars or hammers or, or other uh, implements. Um, it basically comes down in the end to, to him and the Albert Brooks kingpin sort of facing off and getting into a knife fight. Basically, over the million dollars that that still is is a, uh, not been returned to the gangsters, and Ryan Gosling does get stabbed in that scene, but he but he prevails. He he kills Albert Brooks with his with his knife, and he's only uh, Gosling himself is only wounded. He then drives off, but he leaves the million dollars behind, and it sort of it, it seemed to be like you know an indication of like oh this guy it really is only about the code for him it sort of gets at that samurai idea that he's he not- wasn't trying to keep the money in the first place i don't think there's really a moment except when he offers it to carrie mulligan which by the way would be a really stupid thing to do if you're trying to protect her he should right. have said i wouldn't take it if i were you but at one point he does try to get her to take it but we don't ever have any evidence that he's trying to take it for himself even at the end in the chinese restaurant with albert brooks right i mean he right, would have gotten away but at, that, away if but he at the at the point when brooks is dead what why not why not take it why leave a million dollars in a duffel bag in a parking lot i guess it's still that money has been suge- it's been suggested belongs to someone else, obviously, and he maybe he doesn't want his hands dirty with it, but it seemed a little bit. Right. I, I, my my impression was that it was because he was afraid it would be linked to him and the Philadelphia gangsters that that Ron Perlman talks about whose That's money true. it is would come after him. But of course, he it's implied that. that they're coming after him anyway, or that whatever part of the mob he's offended is is, is coming after. Yeah, him. I mean, we, he he sort of drives off into the into the darkness at the end of the movie, and I think we're supposed to believe that his days are probably numbered, even though he's wiped out all of his immediate people who are after him. He's there. Are a lot of people in the Los Angeles and possibly Philadelphia and New York underworlds are are going to be upset about the stuff that went down that he had a part in. So he's certainly not riding off into the sunset, uh, quite the opposite. But uh, he's doing it uh, without a million dollars that he could have had. It's like he could have used that money to like fly to Bora Bora. You know, that might have extended his life a little bit. Right. Yeah. I mean, to me, this is clearly a movie that couldn't have a sequel. But if it did have a sequel, it would be very short. I get the feeling that that character is (laughs) not going to... He'd bleed out in the first 15 minutes. (laughs) You'd need someone someone else to to take the mantle of the antihero. Driver, too. Yeah. Well, so we didn't even talk about this up front. I usually just start off with, did you like the movie? I think it's pretty obvious for that we both did like it. But I, let's just talk a little bit about the style, the feeling. What sets this apart from your, your average car chase thriller? Um, I, I love this movie. The more I, the more distance I have between actually being in the theater and being kind of rattled the way I described before, the more I, I, uh, I think it was just it was one of the most intense movie-going experiences I've had in a while. And I really went in for the style. Uh, it is heavily stylized, but in a way that I found... Uh, really wonderful and not affected in any any way. It's, it felt I think we both uh, felt like it, it felt like a Michael Mann movie from the 1980s, and it's it's clearly trying to be uh, a 1980s 
type of movie, you know, starting with that neon pink script. I mean, it sends you right back uh, into the Reagan era when you see that. Uh, the, the sort of electronic music, uh, which is threaded throughout the movie, also kind of uh, gives you a kind of like uh, 80s feel. And the movie, in, in, in particular, the beginning of the movie is really slowly paced in a way that I, I really admired for a movie that's, that's an action noir uh, <clears throat> that does speed up at the end. It's, it's really in the beginning, it's mostly about a guy who's uh, got a, you know, some, some soft feelings for his neighbor and the, you know, the fun things that he does with his neighbor and his neighbor's um, son. You know, they, they go on these little trips and he fixes her car. It's, and there's not a lot of dialogue. There's a lot of kind of so, slow, silent shots of these very attractive people looking at each other and sort of demonstrating wordless affection, which I, which I really thought was great. It, it ramps up pretty believably, though. It, it, it's, it's odd that it does basically turn into a total bloodbath by the end, right? Yeah. And you're just gripping your armrests. And But by that point, you've been drawn into the story enough and the characters that I, I was completely in the movie. I mean, it, this movie really did that suspense thing to me where I had to keep telling myself it's only a movie. I know, me too. And I think we both – there were both scenes that we didn't watch. Albert Brooks dispatches a sort of mid-level – uh, crony of his at one point with a butcher knife. I did not. I I saw it was happening, and I. What's your method? A, do you do a hand in front of the I eye? I was or? looking down at my at my notes, trying to you know, trying to decipher what the last thing I'd written and pretending sort of to myself that I was. Uh, I actually did want to read that line. And just, <laughs> but in fact, what had happened was uh, Albert Brooks had stuck a fork in this guy's eye and was now going to the not like for a butcher knife. And I you know it was clear that the clear that this is going to be uh, a pretty dismal. Yeah, he actually he managed to find just on a pizzeria counter. You know, just the place where you get your straws and spoons yeah. sufficient weapons knife. to kill Cook, the character. Yeah. And it was kind of great because when he finished, he sort of threw the knife down and, you know, told his, his buddy to clean up his mess. It, it was it, it was like kind of unbelievable that you would kill someone in a pizzeria in a strip mall like that, you know, in, in broad daylight. But uh, that, that kind of thing just happens throughout this movie and you kind of – you kind of believe it, uh, but I, I couldn't watch that. I couldn't watch that scene. Yeah, I was also playing peekaboo with the elevator scene for sure. I'm not sure that I got a total load of what was happening to that guy, but I got enough of a sense. Yeah. Let's talk about the music really quick because you liked it and, and I didn't. Uh, yeah, I mean, like I said before, I think um, it sort of worked for me. There's one song in particular by a band uh, called College, I believe, that uh, is threaded throughout the movie. We hear it in the mi- in the beginning, the middle, and I think we hear at the, the end. courtship sequence, right? Right, and then there's at one point I think it's playing. Oh, and then it's playing uh, during the moment when Mulligan's husband comes home from prison and they have a welcome home party. I think we're led to believe that the song is playing in the party, but we also hear it two doors down in Gosling's apartment. Gosling's at home sort of fixing a carburetor, you know, under a, under a lamp. In a scene that reminded us both of The American, that yeah, George both, Clooney movie Yeah, we both Washington. had that same reaction. There's a great scene, or we thought it was great, not everybody did, uh, in The American where he spends, you know, a, a tremendous amount of time at some machining kind of— Machining a gun. Yeah, machining a, 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 a like, you know, this bespoke gun right. <laughs> that he's going to use in this killing. And uh, there's something v- very similar about that scene in this carburetor scene. Where in both both cases, we see these people who are really, really talented, really dedicated to their work. Their work happens to be, you know, on the wrong side of the law, although I guess fixing a carburetor is technically legal. But, you know, any time th- these a lot of these cars that they're working on are going to be used in heist, uh, I think we're led to believe. Yes, but we hear that we hear the song again in that scene, uh, sort of filtering into Gosling's apartment, and then we hear it again at the towards the end. I'm blanking now on exactly. Oh, at the very end, over the credit the very sequence. End, yeah, yeah, it's the very last thing you hear. I thought the song was great. I've been humming it to myself uh, all afternoon. I went back to my desk. I found it on YouTube. I've listened to it through three or four times. It's you- called Real Hero.
sort of sound atmosphere is, is perfect, and it has a little bit of an 80s, you know, Spandau Ballet-ish kind of feel yeah. about it, which which goes really nicely. But those lyrics are just too on the nose for me. I was taken out of the movie when some chick was telling me, he's a real hero, he's a real human being. I yeah. mean, I feel like the movie does do a really good job of establishing him as a hero and a human being, but but that song just, just lays it on too thick. Yeah, I guess I did, in, the, in the movie itself, I wasn't thinking too hard about, about the words, and they're sort of, they're almost kind of slurred, so it wasn't, it didn't feel to me like the song was signaling to me how I should think about this this character in particular, and also because it's so clear that the kind of hero he is is not the kind of hero in that song. I don't think, um, but I see I see your point. I, but I, I liked I liked the song, and I generally liked. I think we both liked the the use of music that wasn't that song. There was you know whenever he was driving, there was often kind of. Some kind of electronic uh, yeah, music. I didn't love that. Oh, you didn't like that? I mean, I just felt like the, it's more the use of it that I didn't like. The score is by Cliff Martinez, who actually scored Contagion, the movie I saw last night. The last two movies in a row I've seen <laughs> were scored by Cliff Martinez, and he has that similar style in both. Like, I don't know how to describe it, sort of electronic, almost minimalism, minimalism at times, like yeah. a little bit of a Philip Glass feeling or something like that, synthesizery. Anyway, it's not terrible movie music, but I just thought that it was overused. I mean, this movie has so much silence in terms of dialogue. Right. And there's a few moments that, that there's silence. Overall, there's not background music. And then it made those scenes where there is music seem kind of over-upholstered to me. Hmm. The sound design is fantastic. Oh, here's something worth noting is that is that it's really impressive the way that Ryan Gosling's skill as a driver is almost completely communicated through sound, right? Right. I mean, we don't really see him do that many tricks. And a lot of times you're seeing his point of view onto the road with his eyes in the rearview mirror. So you have no idea what the wheels of the car are doing or what it's doing in relation to the space around it, really. But the sound is used in such a way that you just feel this sickening velocity. Yeah, it's true. That's funny. I thought that the score during the driving scenes when it was playing did did help. It like got me kind of because it almost has like kind of like heartbeat sort of feel to it. You know, it's like that kind of spare electronic sound. And and I, I thought it kind of helped get me in that feeling of like gripping the yeah. Gripping I wouldn't the have changed the music. I just would have used less of it. I mean, yeah, I'm sure fair. part of I have I have the music to. I owe the music some of my, you know, involvement with the movie. Obviously, it was a huge part, but there were moments when it stuck out on its own, and and, and I didn't like that. Yeah. Well, let's talk about performances real quick before we wrap up. So Ryan Gosling, great. Totally great. Role. Yeah. I mean, I, I um. Did I you have to wipe out doubts about him, or you had no? No, doubts I, about I've him? I've sort of fallen for him. Uh, I even really liked him in Crazy Stupid Love, which was a movie I, I didn't like, but I thought he was really fun. I'm like kind of. I, there aren't that many actors who I think could have pulled that off. I'm just I'm very content to look at him being quiet and or like you know offering kind of cone like responses <laughs> to uh, to interrogation. I, you know I think that uh, he has a magnetism and a presence about him that that allows him to pull that off in the way that I thought Clooney did in The American too. I mean I think I maybe even said something on that spoiler similar to that. Like there weren't I couldn't imagine many people other than Clooney having pulled off the American because you just would have fallen asleep. Like, how many people do you want to see work a lathe? You know, right. but I like wanted to see Ryan Gosling working on a carburetor. It's like I'm content to watch that. Um, and for this movie, there's a certain spareness about the entire movie, and uh, he has enough going on that it that it worked for me. Did you did you think that? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's won me over. I, there were some early roles in which I found him a little too actorly, but I've been I've been really loving him for a while now and he's great in this and he yeah. doesn't it's something that he doesn't do I don't quite know how he gets away with it but he doesn't seem terribly broody he's not doing even though he's a guy who doesn't say much and is a strong silent type and all that he's not like a Leonardo DiCaprio like heavy brooder somehow right. uh, Clooney did this with the American too There's he gets across that kind of emptiness you know yeah. that kind of zen emptiness of the character and that makes it feel a little bit like a European movie it's like French noir yeah absolutely 
Mulligan, I thought, was was fine. She doesn't have much to, to work with. She sort of looks, makes puppy dog looks at Gosling, you know, a good amount. She sort of, I, I, you know, I, I was sold on the fact that she was interested in him and, and sort of torn about what the best thing for her son was, given that, you know, her options were a getaway driver and a ex-con. Um, but, you know, I thought it was a sort of small role. I loved, I thought Albert Brooks was great as an actual tough. I, you know, it's not a role that you think of him um, playing, and he is he he is comic in a, in a way. He has some very some funny lines, and uh, but he's but, menacing. But as he's hell. really menacing, and and the idea that this guy can be this kind of and he's supposed to be a, an ex movie guy. Like he he tells us at one point that he before before going into whatever kind of gangsterism that he's currently in, involved in, he he made a bunch of movies. One suspects like B movies. And, uh, you know, he seems sort of like a ham when you first meet him. And then you find out that he's a ham who's, like, willing to willing and able to kill people in cold blood. And not, like, standing ten paces away with a gun. Like, hand-to-hand combat, like, slit your wrists with a barber's <laughs> razor. I will say the way he killed Brian Cranston made no sense. It's just, just I don't clean know. up alone. It, 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 <laughs> yeah, so what happens is they – basically, Cranston knows that his goose is cooked at this point. He You know, he's been told he needs to, to split town because the, the mob's uh, on to him. Uh, he's sort of on his way out of the chop shop, and uh, Albert Brooks is sort of waiting for him, and they have a kind of gentlemanly conversation. Brooks goes in for a handshake. And it had been previously established that he wouldn't shake his hand, so that's a, that's a, a tough moment, too. Exactly. So they go in for this for this handshake, and as soon as the hands meet, uh, Albert Brooks' sort of offhand reaches for a, uh, this basically like a barber's razor and slits uh, the wrist of Brian Cranston, who then like, you know, bleeds out. And uh, it is like much gorier and messier than it would need be. Although there was a certain way in which I kind of liked it. It almost seemed like it was Albert Brooks's character's way of like killing him honorably. You know, he's like, he's like, it's okay. There's no more pain. It's going to be quick. It was like, it was like, given some of the brutal, brutal ways that the people are dispatched in this movie, he was sort of killing him in the most uh, painless way that he can think of. I think he had a certain respect for Cranston's character. And, and, it, and it was sort of established that they were, Friends of a, of a type, you know, I think you never really have a friend in the underworld of Los Angeles. <laughs> you know, previously Cranston's other friends had broken his pelvis when he'd failed to pay up for The Cranston you know, character was so kind of endearingly bad at his job. He was so like bad. a bad criminal. Yeah, really, really bad criminal who was going to get this one day. But, I would yeah. still rather be shot. Albert Brooks, if you've got it in for me, just bring the gun. Because <laughs> oh, I mean, that, that wrist slit was rough. Oh, no, it was it was definitely rough. Uh, but I don't, I don't know that it, uh, it, it made some sense to me. In the context of the, of the movie, uh, for, and also, you know, Brooks seems to have a thing for knives. He would go after after the killing. We see him washing off the knife and then placing it in this kind of like you know, oh, enameled, razor blade, right, right, right the uh, razor blade, and, and and placing it in this kind of enameled case with like other <laughs> fancy knives. Surely, my sharp things collection, <laughs> which he then you know produces another sharp thing to kill Gosling later in the movie, but doesn't but doesn't manage to do it. Um, so, but I thought anyway. I thought Brooks was great, and there are also a lot of great performances. Every, I feel like every role was just beautifully cast. Yeah, standard. Oscar Isaac as, yeah. as Standard Gabriel, <laughs> the unusually named Standard Gabriel. There's a good joke about his name too, but he he's, he really stands out in a very small role. Yep. It just the, the whole movie has this feeling of craftsmanship. You know, it's, it's yeah. about this craftsman, and it feels like it's it's by a craftsman and someone whose career seems really exciting to, to witness. This guy, this Danish guy, Reffin. Yeah, it made me want to you know go to Netflix and uh, you know put a bunch of Reffin films in my in my queue because yeah, I, I, I confess I've never seen one. Yeah, and, his uh, previous films. We'll just read them out here. Maybe maybe people have heard them. Pusher was his debut in 1996. He was only 24, so he's still pretty young oh, now. Wow. And he made Bronson, which you had heard of. I hadn't heard about Bronson. It's a British crime thriller. I think that makes sense, yeah. And uh, and then something, a medieval epic called Valhalla Rising, which given the gore in this movie, I would oh, imagine God. that's a, that's pretty hardcore. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and um, you should mention the detail that you, that you found out uh, 
uh, about Refn uh, from from the notes about his own experience of driving. Oh yeah, I just was reading in the press notes that he doesn't have a license and he doesn't know how to drive, <laughs> which is kind of fantastic. I wonder if, in addition to you know consulting with underworld experts, he just talked to someone about what it's like to drive a car <laughs> because there's beautiful driving details in here. I mean, the driving gloves and you yeah, know, holding hands over the st- the standard shift. You know, yeah, Gosling wears a, a pair of driving gloves that are really. Um, Beautiful leather ones with the you know the, the kind with the uh, cutouts over the knuckles, and he he wears them at different points in the movie. And when he gets angry, a couple times this happens. When he gets angry, he just balls up his fist while wearing the um, driving glove, and you you can hear the crackle of the leather. That's you know? what I mean about the sound. Yeah, design. it's just like that. Like that is just such a great little touch, and I think it's also an example of how well crafted the movie is. Um, but it's just. Uh, yeah, it's that part is really great, and I, I mean, this movie did not feel like it was made by someone who doesn't drive. I thought it it uh, really captured some great driving while not going overboard with the with the driving, and it made me, as a New Yorker who walks and takes a subway, wish that I could go out tonight and just like drive my you know Ford Mustang around uh, around the city and you know gun it down the Henry Hudson or something because it, it you know it, it, there, there's a real visceral feeling of speed in those scenes, and it, and it's like driving of a type that you like you think I could maybe do some of that, not all of it. I mean, a lot you know a lot of it's pretty fancy but it's not so ridiculous that you couldn't imagine yourself in some of those scenes and you know duking it out with this guy who's really talented all right well john thanks for seeing it with me thanks for talking about it with me i've worked through a little bit of the uh, the, the queasy feeling now. yeah i think so me too but uh, i think folks should go uh, despite the, knowing you're going to be a little queasy you should still go see this movie it's really it's one of the more exciting times i've had at the movies for a while Oh yeah it's one of the best movies i've seen this year yeah for sure Okay, thank you, John. Thanks, Dana. Our producer is Jesse Baker, the executive producer of Slate Podcasts, and the editor of this spoiler is Andy Bowers. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.